right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Pragmatic Investor Podcast, your one and only source for unbiased investment information. We don't judge. We just listen, learn, and do what works. Today, I have with me a fellow investor and essay con contributor, Brett Ashcroft-Green. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, James. All right. So why don't you start us off today by just uh, giving us a little bit of uh, your background, uh, how you got into investing and into seeking alpha particularly. Yeah, kind of uh, my background in general, I would say, at least as it relates to finance and investment is I, I, I do work for a company. We facilitate foreign investors that are high net worth investors from overseas that are, are moving to the U.S. and give them investment options. Uh, we also have a small real estate business. And then, you know, from a standpoint of equities investing uh, in real estate, um, I've been doing that for about 10 years just on a personal level of, you know, taking my own uh, cash flow and reinvesting into things and, and kind of uh, just being my own investor and having that take off as my other form of income as well. Okay, great. Um, so in terms of your investment uh, style, I see on your Seeking Alpha bio, I guess you would define yourself kind of as a value investor. Is that right? I would say value investor, but it's kind of hard to define. I'm I'm into many lines of value investment. I know that you can't really uh, put every kind of stock into one hole. Like I, I look at a lot of discounted cash flow people, and they try to evaluate every stock the same way. I think every every industry, every sector is very unique, and you have to evaluate them in different ways. But um, I read a lot, so I have a huge library of value investment books. Uh, I like to say on on Seeking Alpha that my articles are somewhat of uh, book reviews through application. So I follow a few authors very closely of uh, value investment, uh, different hedge fund managers. And, um, you know, I, I, I do pick and choose what I like to use and use them uh, differently for different types of stocks. Okay, great. Um, so uh, with that said, uh, I was looking at some of your content and I noticed uh, a few, um, few metrics coming up quite a bit. Uh, for example, uh, the Graham number, I, I noticed you use that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just uh, maybe yeah, tell us a bit about that, why you, uh, you use that value? Yeah, I mean, I think for companies that have a lot of hard assets, that's that's from the intelligent investor, Benjamin Graham, kind of when looking at what is a good value to hit a stock is in general, when the price to book times the price to earnings doesn't cross 22 and a half. And then to get the price target, you can use that square root of the EPS uh, you know, times 22 and a half times the book's value. And then you can come up with a price target on that. So that's good. I think for certain types of companies, um, especially I'm looking at like, let's call it craft or AT&T or someone who has a lot of hard assets. Mm -hmm. Um, but then obviously a lot of companies with an intangible assets, it doesn't work very well for it all. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, actually, I was while I was looking through some of your articles. I noticed that, for example, you did have a, a buy rating on Tesla. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps not traditionally yeah. uh, considered a, a value investment company. Um, yeah, no, exactly. That doesn't fit in that box at all. So, I mean, that more or less, I'm looking more towards Peter Lynch, you know, looking at mm -hmm. the the five year trailing compounded annual growth rate in their non gap earnings. So I think even looking at like uh, Bill Miller or Nick Sleep, some of those individuals that got into Amazon early, you know, you really have to look at the non-GAAP numbers. There's a lot of expense write-offs when these companies are starting. So looking under the hood, I like to call it, 
um, is very important. Um, not looking at just what the SEC requires for earnings reports, but you know, even as a personal investor, when you file your own taxes, you try to take as many write-offs as possible. Your income might look low, but your cash flow is a totally different story. Absolutely, that's uh, that's very true. I mean, to find those things where you just need to get into the nitty gritty, I guess, kind of like uh, all these investors, Benjamin Graham, I guess. How would you say you go about choosing a stock, let's say? Is that what you do? Is it sort of just going to the SEC filings? Um, uh, I mean, the first place I would look, and, and I don't know if you're a Monish Pabrai fan at all, too, but I've, I've been into some of his podcasts in the past, but just looking at the 52-week lows, seeing what's crashed the hardest, kind of just focusing on those segments and then seeing if there's anything worth buying. And then, you know, if you see stocks that are down, try to evaluate them on multiple bases. I mean, first, you're looking at the most logical one, what are the gap ratios? If it doesn't pencil out there, you know, is there something under the hood? Um, looking at the balance sheets, but uh, yeah, I mean, mainly focusing on what has been hit the hardest, what sector is out of favor. I've written some articles about the anti-bubble, you know, thesis that that's always kind of where you want to start looking is where are the blue chips that are beaten down. Um, when there's a bubble somewhere, there's always an, an antithesis of that bubble somewhere else. So um, that's, that's kind of something I've mentioned a lot. Like when oil was, was totally clobbered during COVID, I'm not a big oil and gas guy, but when I see Exxon trading at, you know, I don't know, 80, 70, 80% of book value, it just seems too obvious to me, even though they're not recording, you know, positive gap earnings, they're obviously have assets that are very valuable. So, I mean, that was, that was a, a little bit of a no brainer. And right now I think we're cycled into, um, big tech being, you know, down 30, 40, 50% in some instances. And, and there's some really good investments there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I guess that's, uh, that's obviously a good, good place to start to the, for value is those, those companies that are discounted. So it kind of leads me into my next question. You, you, you talk a little bit about tech. Uh, maybe, I guess I'd like to know a little bit sort of maybe from that kind of macro perspective, um, if there are any particular sectors you're looking at right now, like you said, big tech, uh, anything else and maybe kind of your overall thoughts on the macro and or if you even care. Yeah. About I mean, <laughs> I mean um, personally right now I'm more focused on big tech, Amazon, Google, meta, Microsoft, Microsoft and meta have gotten away a little bit, you know, on the upside. I think Amazon's still great buy. Uh, just put out an article on Uber today as well. Um, I think, I think Uber it's, it's not a traditional value, but I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's getting there to where you might want to look at it as one of those Amazon, you know, it's scaling up so fast that it almost becomes too obvious of an investment that the market doesn't even want to quantify it. They, I, I feel like with tech, people want to be in the thing that makes others feel like they have insider knowledge. When you present a thesis to your friends and you talk about artificial intelligence or something, it sounds a lot more intelligent than saying, you know, Uber or ride sharing, which, which everybody knows about. So um, a lot of those take, I think, more time to even get priced to the upside, but um, I'm, I'm really liking Uber at the minute too. Okay. Very interesting. I did just see that you published that. I didn't quite have time to look at it. Uh, maybe, you know, since it's your most recent post, uh, just very quickly kind of add since you, like you said, it's not really a traditional value investment. What, what exactly about Uber is it that would make you say, ah, well, this is a stock that I want to invest in. Yeah, well, re reading enough enough books um, regarding, you know, what, um, like, are you, you, you familiar with the Nomad Fund and Nick Sleep and, and Kay Zakaria, and then... Uh, I'll say I am, no. Okay, yeah, I mean, well, that 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 is that was a small hedge fund um, 
that was, I believe, early 2000s. They got into Amazon, Costco early. Um, Berkshire Hathaway actually had investment in their fund as well. And then they went all over the world and found a lot of net net investments where the cash value of the stock is actually higher. The net cash value of the stock is higher than what it's trading for. So they would go to like, I forgot which, which African countries they were going to, but I mean, they would buy stocks all over the world, just finding that kind of thesis and then also combine it with these uh, huge revenue scaling companies that were just turning positive in adjusted operating income. So that's, that's something I've seen consistently when people were looking at Amazon early, looking at uh, Costco early, is that you could see the revenue scaling. It seemed pretty obvious. And then, but obviously gap earnings consistently look ne negative. Even with Amazon today, it looks almost the same way and it's almost on purpose. Um, but you'll see if you look at the income statement and the operating income portion, if you add back like research and development, for instance, um, same thing with Uber, if you add that back into it, it actually looks like they have now about a billion dollars in positive operating income. So that's a low price of sales combined with, you know, backing out the R&D and factoring back into operating income is kind of the, the, the turning point at which a lot of those theses became good and be where you saw big investments coming in and then they cashed in on them later. It might've taken five years for the market to realize it. Um, but once they start having that positive operating income, backing out the R and D the business is starting to become self-sustainable and Uber um, from my calculations is just turning into that right now. All right. I guess. So you're just talking about kind of, yeah, getting to that sort of sweet spot, I guess, where yeah, cash first starts to, um, business kind of becomes self-sufficient in a way. Yeah, and, and they and Uber, I mean, they just, uh, I think year over year revenue growth was about 82%. And then, you know, there's there's been articles about Lyft versus Uber. Um, but I mean, Uber now has got mm. about seven times more revenue than Lyft. So it's, it, they're getting their fingers into all kinds of, of sharing economy right now. It's just pretty amazing. So um, I'm pretty confident in that one. It might not pan out, who knows, but I'm, I'm starting to put some money in there. Well, you make a compelling point. I'll definitely have to uh, do my own research on that one. Sure, yeah. Uh, kind of on the same topic, but maybe a little bit different. Uh, in terms of Uber, any thoughts on kind of the artificial intelligence in terms of the, uh, obviously, the uh, driverless cars and how that technology is maybe going to affect that segment, those companies? True. No, I, I, I've seen that um, and other you know, actually reading some reports by, uh, I think it was Morningstar, one of their analysts was making that point to saying that if, you know, uh, Google, Tesla, they have the autonomous vehicles that they could just take over the autonomous taxi industry and, and wipe out Uber and Lyft. I mean, maybe, but um, I feel like it's still an industry that they're far behind in. Even if they produce the vehicles, I think the platform to actually serve the customer Uber's just leaps and bounds ahead. I think people are are discounting, thinking that that's such an easy industry to develop the software for, um, and to provide that service. I think they've they've put a lot of time and effort into it. Obviously, more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I see on your seeking alpha bio also that you are fluent in Mandarin. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, how did that happen? Um, so I studied abroad in China, um, and then let's see after studying abroad i went back i have i have a i have a wife from there as well um but i also served as a mandarin interpreter here where i live so as a court interpreter 
And then uh, with my current employment, starting out in 2012, you know, I was in China almost every other month and we work with investors there. So uh, basically a combination of study and just, uh, you know, work experience using Mandarin. So I, I have to use it at a high level to, to, you know, describe securities and business deals and those items. So um, yeah, I've been lucky to have that opportunity to, to, to spend a lot of time in China, especially before what happened with COVID now, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, not as easy to get there. I mean, people are getting back there again now, but it's just whether or not it's desirable to go is another point. Um, but spending a lot of time there was mainly it. Yeah. Absolutely. And the big question on investors' minds, especially over the last year, is whether it's desirable or not to invest in China. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, having having so many friends there and everything like that and seeing how businesses operate. Uh, I know accounting standards are totally different than what the United States has. And I don't want to say too much about the Chinese accounting standards, but I will say it's much harder to get away with cooking your books in the U.S., especially if you're publicly listed and have to report to the SEC. Still, a lot of companies get away with it. Uh, WorldCom, Enron, all those other big names that we know that, that cooked their books and did those things. But um, I would say it's it's far more prevalent in China. And then also what we buy here are those, uh, what are they, variable interest equities, VIE structure. So it's not mm-hmm. really common equity. Um, what we own is some sort of a profit sharing agreement that's collateralized by a Cayman Islands shell company in, in general, right? Mm-hmm. And at any point, I think uh, the Chinese government could force those companies to, to pull out and um, you know, what recourse do we have as investors? I mean, I don't think if I, if I, if I don't have any recourse in the court of law, if I can't file a class action. Um, I would just be too scared to do it. I think um, it's just, it's too easy if, if something goes wrong um, that they could fleece investors. All right. So if I'm reading you correctly, I'm guessing not, not a lot of exposure to China then. I would love, I would love to actually, my main exposure before the China was through SoftBank. I, I bought a lot of SoftBank before I got out of that, but they, they had all those pre IPO deals with like DD and then, um, bite dance. Um, mm-hmm. those, those, those were interesting to me, but then once, um, once Trump and to, even to a greater extent, I think the Biden administration has started to really, uh, require more out of those Chinese companies and, and the geopolitical environment got a little worse. I think it was smart to, to not be in those, but I was certainly tempted. I mean, I've, I've, I've used DD's product in China a lot. And it's funny because when we first were there, it was all Uber. We were taking Ubers everywhere. And I thought it was amazing. They were all over China. And then all of a sudden, you know, DD came out and it was basically the Uber U and they just flipped it on its side and turned it into a D it's still same colors, everything. I mean, it was obvious. They just took it over completely and then um, bought Uber out. I forgot what happened, how that that, that it was. But then DD took over. And yeah, I mean, the market was massive. The product was great. It was just like Uber. There's really no differences between it. Um, but I'm just not comfortable with the way that the, the stocks were structured when we purchased them here. Right, of course, yeah, that's a very reasonable argument. I do have some exposure to some... Uh... Some stocks over there, but like you say, it, it is a it is a risk that you have to be very wary of. Um, next question I wanted to know: <clears throat> How much attention would you say you pay to uh, something like monetary policy? Then a lot, yeah. I mean, um, I'm kind of OCD when it comes to finance and stuff. I'm on podcasts all day too, listening to them in addition to reading and writing. So 
between all the things that I do. I mean, it, it pretty much uh, absorbs my life. So I'm, I'm into those things. It's, it's great jogging material to listen to. <laughs> I absolutely agree on that. What's, uh, since we're on the topic, what would you say? Interesting podcast for, for people listening to, wanting to get some more finance, uh, economics kind of information? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> there's so many, there, there, there's just so many resources of people that are talking about, uh, I mean, I like the, I actually like the Rebel Capitalist quite a bit on YouTube, if you've heard um, that before. Um, but even stuff that's just kind of not typical, you know, a lot of stuff about the real estate market too. I'm in the real estate. So there's so many different YouTubers that are into uh, real estate and when is the crash going to come? And they're always talking about rates and getting into the Fed policy and the economy and those things. Uh, another Seeking Alpha contributor I actually absolutely love, but I think some people maybe don't, is, is, is Bill Gunderson. I listen to his podcast almost every day. So he's got about 35, 40,000 followers on, on Seeking Alpha. Um, Writing-wise, he's probably not as good as he is on his podcast. Uh, but yeah, his, his podcast, I think is great. And they have, they actually run a fund. So Gunderson Capital, uh, you know, they're, they're real professionals. So they do, they do actually manage money too. Right. So big question then, when is the crash going to happen? Ah, I've been waiting, you know, it's, 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 I got lucky on some real estate at the bottom last time. And I was, I was here on the ground level. Um, another part about our real estate company is we work almost exclusively with asset managers so the asset managers there's a lot of them they just specialize in managing uh the debt purchases of either banks or other whoever buys the the, the defaulted debt of a borrower right so in 2008 2009 um you know, and I don't hear this a lot because there's not a lot of people that were involved in it like, like I was. Um, you could do, I mean, realtors would work with these uh, groups of people that they call asset preservation services. And they would, as soon as an asset manager would call them, they'd be at the house as soon as the notice of default was filed and they'd be changing the locks. I mean, it was very fast. And they had the robo signers that would sign the documents, wasn't even a human uh, a lot of lawsuits happened. I feel like the liquidation of foreclosures before and, and getting to the point, I think this is the main thing that when you flood the market with foreclosures, that's when the real estate crash happens. Uh, but it's just not so easy anymore at all. Uh, before the banks were so willing to go after them and the individuals living in the homes didn't really know their rights. Um, the amount of lawsuits and legal expense that the banks incurred afterwards I believe, and I think this is also an incorrect topic that a lot of YouTubers get into. They're always saying the foreclosures are coming, the foreclosures are coming, just like 2008 or 2009, the rights are totally different. Behind the scenes, these banks, it's like a hot potato. They don't want to touch these things. They'd rather negotiate with the individual in the house. They're even foreclosing the property and then selling it back to the owner right now. I mean, that's what they want to do. So they'll take, you'll live in your property. You'll become my tenant as a bank. But I'll come back to you and I'll say, James, would you like to purchase this property at market value? And it's just like a refi. Basically, I foreclose this, but I'm willing to sell it back to you. I don't want to go through the process of evicting you. Um, so that's happening. Then you got the 40-year mortgage, which you've probably heard of now. The FHA here is, is uh, allowing individuals to uh, tack on some of their penalty interests if they were in default and then extending their loan terms. I think new loans are going to extend out to 40 years too. 
So those are all going to prolong it. I don't know when it's going to happen. We've seen on the West Coast where I am probably, I don't know, some markets 15 to 20%, but I mean, you're still not even back to like 2021 prices yet. So when, if we, I don't know if we'll ever see like that opportunity again that we saw in, in 08 and 09, there'd have to be like massive job losses, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds uh, very interesting. Like you say, I guess what you, what you mean is that then the, we will have some kind of a, maybe not a crash, maybe a more kind of orderly fall in prices and then maybe the distribution of losses uh, is going to be a bit different maybe. So some of the banks are kind of taking a bit more of a hit than they, than they were before rather than the individuals. Well, that's one, that's one of my main concerns too, right? Everyone's talking about the banks and, and what's going on with them, but a big portion of their balance sheets is, is tied up in, in, in mortgages, mm-hmm. mortgage-backed securities. And if they need to generate cash from them, I mean, foreclosures are part of the process of actually adding cash to the balance sheet. You sell that debt to someone else or you do the foreclosure yourself. And then, you know, the, the, the mortgage turns into cash. Maybe, maybe there's a loss, but at least they can turn it into cash. Um, I don't know what that's going to do, but I know that those assets are going to be much harder to liquidate um, from a perspective of the collateral uh, than ever. I mean, you might be able to sell the debt around five times and keep discounting at 20% every time to whoever wants it, but to actually take the house away from someone is going to be really hard. Wow, very, very interesting stuff. Um, Kind of just to finish off on the same subject, real estate, I feel like is often... um, an investment uh, kind of sector that maybe for retail investors a little bit hard to uh, get into how how do you normally how would you say uh, as a retail investor what would you recommend the best way to go about maybe trying to get exposure and uh, profit the most from perhaps what could be a good opportunity in the future um well i mean you know seeking alpha is big on reach so there's a, a couple of reads that i like there's some good exposure there and there's some logic to to mm-hmm. being invested in some good reads um there's still good deals, especially in the Midwest of the United States. Um, I know you're you're in Europe right now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, based in Barcelona, Spain. Gotcha. I have no idea what the market looks like over there. If there's good deals, I know that Spain, Portugal are heavily invested in by individuals from the Middle East and India and China. Uh, they have immigration programs too, where you can just buy properties outright. So I assume. The, the, the real estate market in Spain and Portugal are inflated because of that also. Um, I know Portugal is, I, I, I know a lot about that market. Even Americans are retiring in Portugal and trying to do Airbnb businesses there. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, in the U.S., if you're looking in the U.S., I mean, the Midwest, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Ohio, I think there's still good deals where you can get decent returns on investment. And and there's so many good apps now to where if you hire a property manager, even though you're not local to those areas, um, if you find one that uses an app like Buildium, um, it's just like basically digitizing your property. So you buy a duplex somewhere and then that manager uses one of those apps. You can see every repair that happens every time there's a cash flow in your account. It's just like, to me, it's, 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 it's so simple. You know, you can buy properties anywhere and just you know, monitor it through the app. You can see everything that's going on. So I, I think that's that's an amazing opportunity too. It's just just talk to local property managers and markets you're interested in. See if they use an app that makes you comfortable enough to own a property there. Maybe take a trip, just fill out the market. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of against like investing in those 
those private equity um, real estate deals, um, like what Grant Cardone or someone they might yeah. they might offer. I just think there's too much taken off the top that if you read prospectus enough, you'll see that you're not getting the most that you can. I'd much rather just find a property manager, pay him 10% and collect everything. Yeah, it's true. It is true that with technology, obviously, it uh, makes these things a lot simpler. It does seem that sometimes, obviously, if you look on, on the internet and even Instagram, YouTube, you see a lot of videos of people talking about how you can just basically buy get you know get a loan from the bank and buy seven airbnb properties and just airbnb them and cash flow i mean that kind yeah. of looks a little bit like 2006 yeah yeah airbnb looks like a bubble for sure that's hard i've, I've seen even in some midwest markets that the homes that were obviously airbnbs because you could tell what an airbnb finish looks like on the inside you know it's got the gray plastic floors and the uh, the countertops are always some sort of a white quartz. And, and there's, there's a pattern like that people make Airbnbs look like, you know, that, that attracts the, the hip, the hip people. Uh, but now they're turning into long-term rentals. So it is, there is definitely a weakening in Airbnb. There's way too many of them. Um, I, I don't know. I'm kind of torn about which one's a better way to invest. Certainly if, if it's a niche market that has a lot of tourism, Airbnb is great. Um, but you know, even like Las Vegas is a, is a tourist market. It's hard. There's some areas you can't even do it in Las Vegas because the casinos help regulate that city. So it just depends. And regulations always change and affect Airbnbs also. I think a lot of people just are, are trying to get out of them right now and, and either sell them or turn them into long-term rentals. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to talk about about a uh, portfolio allocation. What are your thoughts on when you think about how to uh, allocate your portfolio, or building a kind of balanced portfolio? Any thought about that? Um, so I'm pretty much 100% equity. I, mm -hmm. I ex except for right now. I mean, I have to admit that there's a great opportunity as far as money market funds are concerned and different CDs and deposits. I mean, they're almost like dividend stocks right now because they keep raising the interest rates every month. So I can't blame anyone for doing that. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't invest in long-term bonds. I think all equity, even Warren Buffett says that. I mean, he's in his 90s. He's all equity. Um, there's just a lot more logic, I think, to being in equity versus debt um, in a portfolio, as long as you know what you're looking at. And then I'm pretty much along the equity um, allocation. I would say I'm at least 50, 60% in what I try to call my beta side. So... Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean I'm in index funds. I do have a lot of index funds too, but I try to match the market. And I have a couple articles I put out about that. And one is indexing the Dow Jones. So, I mean, it's only 30 stocks. Most brokerages don't charge commissions anymore per trade. So it's a, it's a price weighted index. So all you have to do to match the Dow is basically buy every stock 30 times over and over and over again. And then I really love Joel Greenblatt and the magic formula. Um, so that he has a free screener that you can pull up you know, the top 30 stocks in the stock market that have a, a scoring system um, that is return on invested capital plus earnings yield to find the best cheap stock by earnings yield combined with the quality of the company by their return on invested capital score. Um, those are what I like to call my beta plus side, 50, 60%. I'm trying to, to, to match the market with maybe a couple points of alpha, own all the stocks as well. So I think it was also interesting talking about Charles Schwab, right? Charles Schwab has been a huge topic on Seeking Alpha for I don't know how many weeks now. Um, 
but they own a lot of index funds. I mean, they manage a lot of index funds that are popular, especially FCHD, which I also own um, and is a great fund, uh, a big dividend fund. But what happens in the case of a failure of, you know, Charles Schwab, not that it's going to happen, but if any of those ever did happen, what does that look like from a perspective of how do you get um, compensated for what you own of that fund, right? I mean, it's, it's a fund containing stocks that may or may not have derivatives associated with it. And in the typical case, I believe for, for a stock, for a company that goes under like Bear Stearns, if they're, you own stocks in their portfolio, I think that would be transferred to a different FINRA uh, affiliated brokerage then you'd have direct access to them you know immediately you don't have to worry about the insurance or where your stocks lie but i just feel there's a lot more benefit to owning the stocks yourself you can still get beta you can still index it's not that hard i think is especially with the no no commission trades now that you can just buy a wide swath of quality companies and still have the same effect you own them and also you know tax wise let's say you need some deductions in a given year, if you want all index funds, I mean, you're probably going to be in the positive. Um, but otherwise, if you own a whole bunch of stocks, I mean, you can select the ones that are down, take your tax write-offs, or you could think something's overvalued. You can liquidate that and put it into something that's down. So you don't have that option in index fund, right? So I, I'm a big proponent of that. I think those are benefits to it. And then the rest of it, is all value depending on you know one of my various methodologies that i that i like and prescribe to would be the other 40 to 50 percent and and those will change depending on on the market i think uh depending on what's down you know it's going to be um it's, it's going to predicate what i'm going to be more heavy in on that end of the equity profile mm -hmm. okay yeah, definitely. I can see how that gives you basically a, a lot more flexibility than than index funds. Uh, speaking of, speaking about Schwab and the banks, we do have a few bank earnings coming in this week. Any thoughts on what we could expect? Uh, we also have the uh, CPI data, I think, coming in uh, tomorrow th or Thursday. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, but what are your thoughts on the bank earnings and how the market might take that? Um, I, I mean... <laughs> The big banks obviously are going to be getting a lot of deposits. They already are. And I've, I've, and um, there was a big influx of them, I think, when some of the regional banks were having problems. I think it's tapered off a bit. But, uh, you know, I think guidance will be good for the banks. They're going to say, okay, we got this many more deposits. It's going to uh, increase their net interest margins by a certain percentage. But banks, on the other hand, even though rates are so high, they're still having a hard time because mortgage demand is way down. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's really, uh, it's hard to find that sweet spot, you know, where is it between interest and mortgage demand um, to make a bank the most profitable? So I don't know where that is. I was, uh, I, I, I snatched up a lot of Wells Fargo during, during the COVID downturn when, when everybody was worried about the banks at that time too. Mm -hmm. That's the only bank I'm in right now. Um, I have been in a lot of other ones like Bank of America and City in the past, but uh, Wells Fargo um, is the main one that, that I own. And, and that was that was the big Buffett bank of the past, too. You know, he, he liquidated it all and he turned on them. But um, I still think that one has been the most conservatively managed over time, um, regardless of what they've been criticized of recently. Every bank has been caught up in something at some point in time. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely... Um... A lot of uh, 
lot of interesting stuff happening in that regard. Um, before we finish, of course, I do have to ask you, uh, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Oh, good. Yeah, sorry. Um, so we can even continue on again if we want to make it go longer about crypto and everything. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I would say at this point, especially with Bitcoin, it's, you know, you want to own real assets. And Bitcoin, in a way, I think is still becoming a real asset because what's your collateral, right? Your collateral in this instance is the computing power of all the nodes that are across the network. And it becomes, and I had this discussion with uh, some other individuals and I did write one Bitcoin article. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes a point to where you're almost invested in your own banking network that is all those individuals on a peer-to-peer -peer network of processing transactions, right? And, and safeguarding each other um, with that asset. So it'll never go away either. I mean, it's not like it can go to zero. It's, it's out there. There's always going to be a value to it. Um, what the future of it looks like is, is hard uh, for me to ascertain. I think there's going to have to be government regulation um, for it to be very successful. And I'm almost thinking that in the end, some sort of a blend between cryptocurrencies and the equities market is going to happen. So, I mean, equities are already a digital asset too, like stocks. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty much, you don't hold a piece of paper in your lockbox anymore. You're just trading digital assets online back and forth. Why couldn't you collateralize, let's say with a smart contract or something in, in Ethereum, right? Why couldn't you collateralize an index fund and instead of paying with cash, I mean, you're holding the S&P 500 in your pocket um, and you're paying for your Starbucks with a fractional share of, of, you know, a cryptocurrency that's backed by stocks. And if if the SEC and the crypto community can come to some sort of, a, um, I don't know, I don't even how you'd make an agreement because the problem is a lot of these, especially Bitcoin, doesn't really have a figurehead, right? They don't have a CEO. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, some sort of a blend between that. I can, I, I mean, there's there's endless possibilities, and and it's just hard to say what the value of every cryptocurrency is, but it's obviously here to stay. I think it can facilitate almost every type of business, um, especially from a collateralization standpoint, to where you could transact things that are collateralized. You could transact a token collateralized by other things. I think it's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, possibilities there using blockchain. Uh, decentralized exchanges obviously could really uh, reduce friction in markets. Someone was talking once about the example of, well, you know, thanks to uh, Bitcoin or blockchain, you could just tokenize your house and then you could just have a yeah, exactly. have your house trading 24-7. I don't know if that would actually be very, people would be, <laughs> how that would affect people psychologically, just seeing the value of your house go up and down maybe by a few thousand yeah. every hour. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Like people people need liquidity, right? I mean, for, for whatever purpose. And the only ones that can dictate basically what you can borrow against your house for are, are banks. So that's a problem. Like people don't have that freedom, but that could, it gives people a lot of freedom. I mean, they could, like you said, equitize their house. They could have a market for it at all points. They could sell fractional shares of it. But that's the point at which government needs to step in and also be a partner because, you know, if you go to any local county, you know, being in real estate, um, the county assessor is in charge of the, the title, right? They, they, they record it and they determine who owns what property. 
So if they're not on board, the county assessors to say, okay, we're going to collateralize your property by whatever token. Um, how do we, how do we achieve that from a legal standpoint that's enforceable in the court of law, right? Because it all it'll all still come down to the enforceability of of trading these assets once we start collateralizing things. You know, it's it's a point right now to where we're just trading tokens, and the tokens have value based on our own sentimental value. A lot of them. Um, but once they start being collateralized by other things, that's that's when you know government regulation is is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, you need to get some kind of a some kind of government on board with this. Really, otherwise, it's going to be hard to at least uh, take it to that mainstream. How do you feel about then Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies, and of course versus Ethereum? Yeah, I mean, so so my knowledge of crypto is not extremely in-depth. In I mean, I've seen Bitcoin from its infancy come up, you know, being in, in India early on too, when people there were, were trading it, I thought it was crazy. It was $7,000 and and I saw, you know, everyone buying it, everyone investing in every kind of cryptocurrency there. I went to go buy some garments in India and they actually gave me a discount for using Bitcoin. So it's obviously the most mature from a standpoint of transactability, um, the most accepted psychologically, I think, worldwide. So it has a a uh, an advantage there as well all right so we're back and we're talking about ethereum and bitcoin and uh, bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies uh, you were saying brett yeah so um i just want to reiterate that my, my knowledge of crypto is not extremely uh, deep but from what i've seen um you know i i back when bitcoin was about seven thousand uh, a long time ago first trip to india i did see i mean it was acceptable at a variety of locations they were giving discounts for purchasing in Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> so from a transactability standpoint, I think Bitcoin has an advantage psychologically that individuals around the world have the most um, experience in using Bitcoin for transactions. Um, but from my understanding, it also is dissimilar to Ethereum in that you can't really collateralize anything with it. Is, is that correct? Um, no, it's it's possible to do. I mean, it's a bit uh, it's a bit different, and there's different issues uh, regarding uh, scalability and a little bit uh, about uh, centralization and decentralization. I think one of the points you were making before was about how yeah, Bitcoin obviously has no entity behind it. That's kind of a bit different with Ethereum, which I think is why it lends itself a little bit more to kind of those kind of institutional uh, kind of investors and um, kind of capabilities to an extent. Yeah. And then also, I think Ethereum, um, it's also like a platform, correct? I mean, a lot of different cryptos use Ethereum's technology and kind of piggyback off of it in order to produce their projects and then um, maybe even collateralize something with that as well. Is that is that a right understanding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way Ethereum was conceived, kind of, you can think about it as a sort of decentralized uh, computer for for the world so yeah basically you have all those decentralized apps going there um obviously a lot of apps uh in the world of finance so what they call DeFi, uh trading on there um it's not that you can't do that on bitcoin it's just that there are different challenges scalability has been one for a long time and well that is why just just today actually i was talking about a a coin a token that allows for more scalability within the bitcoin network so that eventually the uh the bitcoin network could do something like ethereum but that is the the limitation of, of bitcoin and why perhaps you uh 
you need Ethereum. I like to think about it. I've made the comparison before about Bitcoin being like digital gold, where the Ethereum is more like the digital fuel. You could say. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing that I've listened to on podcasts is that Ethereum for processing transactions, they provide something called like gas, right? Which is almost like, it's almost like fractional shares in a way of, of Ether. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's it's a measure. It's called it's way or something like that. That's the gas, but it is just basically an, a very small amount of ether that you use. So, up so I mean, that to me is very attractive because that to me sounds like something that's very similar to stocks. Mm-hmm. Stocks pay a dividend for owning a piece of a business. You own a piece of an asset that's productive. If it's collateralized by something that's productive, you know, you're participating in it. You know, you could be paid gas or a dividend by virtue of having doing things on ethereum or with ethereum um to me that sounds like something that would be very attractive to non-crypto users at this time because there's a lot of cross synergies i think between um financial assets hard assets that produce cash that you can collateralize with and you know get paid in ether and you know, have like a dividend for, for doing work or for owning an asset that's collateralized by a coin, um, which is, is, is very unique. And that's, that's kind of where my thought process has always gone with crypto is that if it could one day collateralize, like you said, your house, collateralize other assets. Uh, like for instance, I had a, I, I had a friend that we were doing um, a tech startup with, and he had another business where he had a, a desert uh, rover, right? And the rover had a had a gold detector uh, attached to it. So his whole plan was that he would be able to collateralize the data from his desert rover that would just be roving all over the desert and, and looking for pings. And then, you know, you would buy um, whatever that currency was. And if you open it, then you would have access to the data that's in there and you would have a certain area of that territory's map of where the gold might be in the ground. So all kinds of unique things, I think, that, that people could go off on and, and, and use. But um, from my perspective, the most attractive thing, yeah, would be collateralizing properties, uh, collateralizing stocks. That, I mean, it just makes too much sense not to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Do you think that maybe um, the institutions, the banks might be kind of against that kind of thing? Maybe that it's giving too much power perhaps to to the retail, to the, uh, to the regular investors to kind of yeah, basically go ahead and say, well, we can kind of replace what the banks are doing in a lot of ways. We can create our own decentralized or maybe not even decentralized, but kind of working exchange rate, thing, exchange uh, uh, stock exchange, for example, without the need of those institutions. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I mean, from a bank perspective, if they're more afraid of that or they're more afraid of dipping their toes in because of the government's, you know, coming back on them, penalizing them, there are other repercussions that might happen for them participating. So um, it's, it's, it's tough to say. I think the banks have already thought of multiple ways they could benefit from it as well. So they're already, uh, you, you know, we see from like, uh, was it SVB and others, there's uh, Circle, which was, I don't, I don't understand the whole story of how it was working, but there's some facilitation by banks of turning cryptocurrencies into cash um, that that became a problem too. So banks are, are certainly thinking about how to use it to their advantage. And I think more regional banks are thinking of it or have already thought of it and are already participating in it because 
there's less regulation, right? Once you have a certain asset level, it's really hard to do that. All the big banks can do, like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, is participate by by buying, I don't know, equity in some companies. Maybe it's just buying currency themselves, but um, for them to actually have some sort of a crypto business is probably off limits um, for those, you know, significantly or systematically important banks, I think is what they call them now, SIBs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think banks will turn over every rock to find out where they can make money. So I think they're interested. They just are still trying to, to figure out what angle to, to take it. Yeah, that's definitely an argument I've made before. Um, I guess as soon as we see Nancy Pelosi buy some Bitcoin, we'll know it's time to pull the trigger, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I've been tracking her on those capital trades. So that's another fun app to see all the congressmen and senators and, and what they're buying and selling. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a. Uh, it's just a matter of time. I don't know. It's, 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 it'll, it'll take time for everyone to get used to it. And um, I don't know how it integrates with the dollar. I mean, they're talking about the digital dollar, mm-hmm. you know, having a crypto U S treasury dollar, those things. So in the end, in all honesty too, a lot of individuals talk about the anonymity or anonymous aspect of crypto, but I think governments really love that it is recorded in a digital ledger. It's hard to evade in the sense of, you know, what transactions occurred, which, which, which ones didn't. Um, and if there's no more cash in society, I mean, the taxation is just going to become easier for, for governments. So, I mean, they're very attracted to it too. They're just trying to figure out what angle to take, who to partner with. I mean, you got the FTX guy like Sam Bankman Freed. It just depends. It's, you're going to have to give your keys to someone eventually, right? To have that kind of a platform. You're either going to give it to these psychopath uh you know techno nerds that are gonna just talk up a storm while they're they're pumped up on adderall and everyone's gonna fall for the trick or you're gonna have to to give the keys to the government um you know it's just it just i think for it to to grow and scale it'll be really hard for just the community to do it um on a peer-to-peer basis Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely like you say i think um it's a double-edged sword and there's definitely something to balance there i think in terms of, like we said before, the decentralization aspect, I think is very strong in terms mm. of Bitcoin. But to some extent, you do need centralization, right? I always say, like, obviously, you're not going to have companies building apps or something on a, a network that isn't controlled by anyone, right? You need, on some degree, at some point, some uh, degree of accountability. Yeah, when I, when I think, when I refer to regulation too, not even to centralize it, but to just protect, protect investors, Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's no protection at all. So it's always if someone scams you and you use their brokerage, it's 100 percent loss. There's no backstop. There's no insurance. And and, you know, the other the counter argument is, well, all the investors in crypto are saying that they're anti-dollar and, you know, they don't want anything to do with it. Um, but then they also get upset when they're they're fleeced and defrauded by, you know, someone like SPF. Um, so where, where, where is a happy medium? I mean, you do need protection if, especially if you're going to be collateralizing things like a house. I mean, that's, that's a lot of individuals biggest investment of their life. I mean, the worst thing would to be is to, to lose your house in some crypto scam. So, um, you know, the protections are definitely necessary. It's, it's, it, it doesn't become a game when people start having hundreds of thousands of dollars involved in it, you know, that can, that can re- result in an individual, you know, committing suicide if, if they end up getting fleece of that kind of, of, of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, in terms of Bitcoin, would I be right to say that maybe you don't subscribe so much to the maybe more traditional uh, Bitcoin idea of Bitcoin as a kind of hedge against the dollar, against inflation, more like a, a digital gold, perhaps playing that role? Yeah, and in, in, in the one article I did write, I almost um, wanted to question the organic nature of a movement, right? So, I mean, it is mysterious. Bitcoin has a creator that nobody's ever met. Um, and you always have to wonder, you know, if governments ever create things to take pressure off something else, kind of the question of gold is, is usually, uh, for banks at least, is the, the, the asset of last resort. If a dollar does fail, you know, they hold a lot of gold on their balance sheets um, in order to protect themselves a reserve currency, you know, worldwide. So the last thing governments also want is for gold to go to the moon and be five to $10,000, which if you look at inflation, it should be something like that, mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Uh, but, you know, having these kind of digital assets also remove some pressure from those physical commodities. So a lot of people that are attracted to gold or silver uh, would maybe now be attracted to to digital currencies. I mean, Robert Kiyosaki is a good example too. He was mm -hmm. a gold bug and now he's he's a crypto guy too, um, which is fine. I mean, they both serve a very similar purpose. Um, being a hedge against the dollar, um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the argument is that crypto and Bitcoin cannot be created in any more than, is it the 21 million tokens? Yeah, that's right, Bitcoin. Yeah. But then they have the forks, right? The forks, which are kind of like stock splits that can happen um, and create different offshoots currencies, right? That, that, that happen from time to time. Yeah, but that, yeah, exactly. Well, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be Bitcoin, though. It would be something else. Exactly. It would I create something else. Or, well, Ethereum is yeah. different. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those are all things to think about. But, um, yeah, it is... It, it does offer, I mean, some level of protection. You're not, you're not in a bank. So the asset is yours. That's, that's one thing I make an argument of why you want to own stocks rather than have all your money in cash is that's your asset. When you have cash in a bank, that's the bank's asset, right? They get to use that as they like to invest in mortgages and bonds and whoever knows God, what else. But when you have that asset, the Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency, that's your asset too. So I, well, I'm a big proponent for that, you know, owning an asset, not giving the rights to someone else to do whatever they want with it. But that's also a problem when you put it in a, in a, in a brokerage like FTX or someone else, um, they now control the keys. They might sell options against it, other items. Um, so if it could be in a perfect world, something truly controlled on a peer to peer network, you don't have to worry about holding it in a brokerage. There'd be a, there would be an effective way to transact and to trade without using a brokerage um, and it probably will happen eventually, but that would be a true decentralized currency that I think would have a lot of value. And right now we're not at that point yet. Um, but when that does happen, I think it'll pull in a lot more investors also. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very good point. And in that regard, do you feel at all that there is any, um, any risk to, to the dollar? I mean, you, you've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of news lately about, for example, uh, different countries going off and, for example, starting to uh, trade oil in yuan, uh, or just in general, a trend maybe of uh, deglobalization that we're seeing and maybe the dollar being shunned. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, the value of the dollar, the impacts of inflation, any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, and the question always is, 
you know, even though there's, there's transactions going on in other currencies, I remember in 2008, 2009 too, people were also laughing at the dollar and they were all, everyone wanted euros. And we all know how that worked out. I mean, the European Union is, well, you're, you're living there. So, but it's, 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 it's a lot of countries don't want a part of the EU anymore. So what's going to happen to the euro in the end is also a question. Are you going to go back to local currencies or still start, keep the euro and transact in the euro? Um, I just, I don't know. If there's some other currency that's besides the Chinese yuan, the problem is that a lot of currencies are not just a representation of of their transactability or their balance sheets. They're also um, who is the figurehead, who is the leader in charge of the country. I mean, you're buying almost an equity interest in whoever that leader is. Like I'm buying an equity interest in, in Xi Jinping if I'm, 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 I'm buying the yuan or, you know, uh, Mohammed bin Salman if I'm in, if I'm in Saudi Arabian dinars or something like that. So that's, 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 that's tough. That's also something that the United States has an advantage of in that, I mean, people know that behind the scenes, we don't always have the world's best intentions in mind. We have our own best intentions in mind. Um, but still, on an overall basis, I think we're still looked at as being the most legitimate from a business standpoint. Um, the most transparent balance sheet, you know, everything that happens with inflation, CPI, I think is, is still the most transparent in, throughout the world. And and in China, I think one other thing that people don't bring up when they look at the debt is that almost every large company in China is a state-owned enterprise. So the debt on the balance sheet of the railway or whatever else is still the debt of the government too. That's still their liability. So um, the United States having a separation between corporations and the government, um, we're very clear, I think, on what the government has borrowed um, and it gives it gives a lot of confidence. Military is a big thing too. Having the the military, you know, behind you. That's also what you're buying into with the currency. Um, how good is the taxation authority? You know, the United States tax is better than anyone else. You know, that's just one thing people hate about the United States is is all the ways the IRS can get you tax you, throw you in jail if you don't pay your taxes. So um, those are all things to consider. I just don't see a replacement for it. And I did think I was, I was almost convinced when I was more naive, you know, what, 12, 13 years ago that the Euro would, would become the dominant currency. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't see an equivalent of, of something like that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of wisdom in those words. I've, I've been recently reading uh, Ray Dalio's latest book. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Changing World Order. I've read yeah. that one, yeah. And he, yeah. yeah. He basically talks a lot about the demise of the U.S., but I think at the bottom line is kind of like you say, I think the U.S. is still, in a lot of ways, uh, a lot better you know, in terms of where you want to invest, where you want to live, where the technology is, where, where the opportunities are. That's still, I mean, that is still the case. Could we argue that the U.S. is in decline, perhaps, but it's obviously going to be a, a very long way way down if if that is the way that it's going, which, you know, it might be, you never know. But like you say, what's what's the alternative at the end of the day? You know, the, there is no perfect, no perfect thing. thing. No, and, and then, I mean, we're, we're unique in that we are, uh, I think, a country that's run by corporations, be it from a lobbyist perspective or anything like that. But our corporations have a much better balance sheet than our government does. Uh, I would say the way they, they function is much more legitimate and they're all the geniuses 
work in the corporations. Um, we have some, I think, tax structures that are very advantageous to produce that as discussing Amazon, discussing Uber, you know, research and development expense to where those companies can show a negative, a negative gap earnings, but still have basically retained earnings through research and development because it spurns growth. It's not about maintenance. Um, and that's when, you know, retained earnings comes after tax. So the government got their piece. Uh, and then you reinvest that into the business. Um, you know, Amazon doesn't care if their earnings per share is negative or positive. They know that they're growing their revenue at an amazing clip. They have half a trillion dollars in revenue now. It's like more than in Sweden or Poland or something. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous and it keeps growing. Um, and they keep using that expense to their advantage. Um, and the United States is very unique in that. I, I think uh, you won't really see that happening in, in other countries. Speaking of that, though, because you did uh, mention that you work a lot with uh, international clients, getting them exposure to U.S. equities. Do you ever think about uh, the need to get exposure maybe to, to other geographies? I always think Japan seems like an obvious one, too. Mm -hmm. um, just growing up and watching movies about, you know, Japanese technology and robots and them eventually taking over the world, you know, and anime and stuff like that. Uh, it seems almost like an obvious bet also. They have a population issue, um, mm. but I mean, they have some amazing, they have amazing balance sheets too. They're more conservative than the US, you know, less debt, more cash. Um, Panasonic is one I've written a few articles about, you know, they're, they're one of the biggest battery makers in the world, highest quality. Uh, they started the first Tesla Gigafactory. They basically fronted a lot of the money for it. They share it down the middle with Tesla, produce the sales for them. So um, they're expanding to work with Toyota now. They're building new lithium battery plants all over the place. So they're transitioning from almost a Japanese company that produces a lot of appliances and televisions to becoming like just a, a, a straight up lithium battery producer and alternative energy producer. Mm. So that's a story that I don't think enough people follow. Um, and they have like, like Fennec, they build a lot of the robotic arms for factories. I mean, they've been, they've been far ahead, I think in factory automation uh, for a long time. And, and those are going to start paying dividends as you know, our factories all over the world start becoming more automated. So Japan is my favorite. Absolutely. You make, you make some very good points. I was actually having a conversation about that the other day about yeah, whether Factories exist now that basically have essentially no workers, and it's basically going to get to that eventually. I mean, I think so, yeah. We already have a, a few establishments, I think, somewhere in, in the US where McDonald's, for example, example, has a restaurant with no workers at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In Japan, too. I mean, I've been to Tokyo and they've already they, they run restaurants with just a couple workers. You just order on a on a screen, take your ticket to the front. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that can be done. <laughs> with with robots and without employees um and it's just going to keep getting it's going to it's going to just keep evolving i think people are going to have to be more subsidized by the the government um maybe as less jobs are available but um it doesn't seem to be a problem from an employment standpoint right now in the u.s at least um, but it, it seems that it'll happen eventually and i think japan will be a big part of that absolutely well robots are very good for cash flow that is that is true yeah, sure. Um, we're speaking, um, you mentioned lithium, and that made me think I, I was looking at your articles and I also saw you wrote about um, uranium at one point. Yeah, so I think that's, I was big into lithium 
and I, I, I cashed out back in 2015, you know, seeing what Albemarle was doing. Um, and for, for viewers not familiar with them, they're the biggest U.S. producer of lithium. They have, they bought a mine. They weren't, they weren't a lithium mining company per se before 2012 or 13. They bought a company called Rockwood in Southern Nevada that was a lithium producer. And then they took that mine over and now that's becoming like the biggest one of the biggest resources for lithium going into batteries and Teslas and such here in the States as well. The only active lithium mine in the U S I believe um, they got South American products and stuff too, but it, it just made sense. You could see that the governments were starting to require uh, a certain number of their vehicle fleets of, of vehicle producers to be battery operated by a certain year. They, they weren't profitable. Those mining companies like lithium Americas or Piedmont or Albemarle at that time but you could just see it was worth putting money into now lithium batteries though they only store energy they don't produce it right so you still need to produce all this electricity and we're seeing brownouts and stuff possibly in the summertime related to electric battery charging in california because their grid is a mess it's terrible um they need more electricity and the only green source of electricity that i could think of this that is uh it doesn't rely on on the weather. I mean, it's, it's uranium, it's nuclear power. And, and the safer that it gets, um, you have like uh, natrium, that, that new modular sodium-based reactor technology that's being um, produced jointly by Hitachi and General Electric, I believe. Mm-hmm. That's, those, those, are, those are starting to roll out. Um, we're seeing that, you know, Rolls-Royce, they're in in uh uk they they produce reactors as well i think those are all angles to take also i think uh hitachi general electric rolls royce um and then the the uranium funds because it's so hard to get access to a lot of the good uranium stocks you know they're in kazakhstan and places like that that um it's really not it's not a place that investors could can dig their fingers into by themselves Yeah, in your article, you talk about you give a buy rating to the uh, global X uranium ETF. Yeah, yeah, and and that that does have like uh, a big position in Kazataprom, I believe, and I think that's that's like the biggest uranium producer in the world mm-hmm. in, in Kazakhstan. How stable that country is, I'm not sure, but I know I know that there is now a Ritz Carlton in Almaty, and if there's a Ritz Carlton there, that means big business is getting done. So. Um, you know, that's from that perspective, I assume, I, I, I assume that, that, uh, there's some deals in the works for a lot of uranium. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's a tricky one lithium because you read about it and I mean, it's definitely the way we're going. It's not necessarily maybe the best way to go. When you think about a lot of people are talking now about all the waste really that those batteries are producing and whether we're actually being environmentally friendly with them. Um, yeah, but I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, so they're so what they're doing, like next to Giga One, they have uh, one of the founders of Tesla. I'm trying to remember what his name is, um, JB Straubel. They have there. I mean, they have a lot of battery recycling factories now too. So those are popping up also. I don't think there's any of them that are public yet, um, but those are those are also I think an offshoot of that industry because yeah, it's you can't be sticking all these lithium batteries in the ground after they've been spent. It's going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so kind of related to lithium, any thoughts on uh, copper? Because I think that goes quite a bit into batteries as well. Uh, I think the, the biggest one is nickel. Mm. Um, the 
the cathode would be uh, the lithium, and then the anode would be um, what do you call it? <clears throat> would be graphene or graphite. So a lot of people have also been trying to, to figure out the graphene industry too, because that's I think you can make batteries completely out of graphite. So there's a lot of wild ideas of what the next battery could be also, what could, what it could be made out of. I think there's a lot of things. Um, lithium is just, you know, it's, it's, it's the first mover. It works. Um, the more dense you can make it, I think the, the more, uh, you know, the more viable it becomes. Um, charging technology, I think, has to come a long way too before EV uh, adoption is more widespread. It takes too long to charge a car. Um, mm -hmm. But the batteries are certainly coming along. I mean, 400, 500 miles on a charge is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. That, well, that's one of the kind of uh, things that maybe a bit interested in Neo, which I've written a lot about in the past, which is they actually just swap out the whole battery. And obviously that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a makes it a lot shorter and B, kind of safer as well, because you just get a fresh battery every time, you know, and get service. So. Yeah, that's that's that, that's interesting. It take a lot of infrastructure, but yeah. Um, it's, uh, I've met some engineers that used to work at Tesla that were Chinese and they went to, they went to, to Neo. So they're definitely poaching Tesla engineers too. All right. So over the next six, 12 months, what are you bullish, bearish, neutral, or is that the, the wrong question to ask? Is that the wrong? I think, yeah, I like to be more like Buffett. I, I want to always be bullish. I just want to figure out, you know, where the good deals are. That's all. Um, I think as long as you're holding time as, 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 as long as possible, just find you know the good deals that people that are out of favor um that's that's the best way to look at it buy quality companies buy dividend aristocrats uh companies that basically their their dividends will grow along with inflation um it it, it just 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 buy something right i mean i guess just remaining in cash is uh is a bad idea always have some sort of an asset mm -hmm. absolutely um I was writing an article today about uh, Petrobras, so mm -hmm. the Brazilian petrol. Any thoughts on that one? Because I know a lot of people have been attracted by the, uh, I believe it's something like a 60% dividend yield or something like that. Oh, boy, yeah. And then there was Zim, like one of the shippers with 80 or 90% for a while, too. That was trending. Yeah, well, Zim, Zim is in the gutter right now, so maybe a good time to buy it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's that's that's tough. Um, when those payout ratios and those dividends get that high where you're, they're paying like a dividend almost equivalent to the value of the share. Um, I would, I would tend to stay away. I just think those are more of a timing thing. You're probably only going to get one or two of those dividends and then, and then their business is going to cycle back to something else. Usually they have to do with their payout policy. Um, and they have some sort of a windfall. <clears throat> so it depends. I mean, that would have to be, I think a lot of inside information on the industry they operate in to figure out how long that windfall is going to, to sustain. Um, but certainly a lot of people made money on Zim. So um, if, if, if you know something, I don't let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll be in there with you. I'm, I'm doing some research, but it's, it's hard. Well, you know, it's, it's basically a state owned company. So that um, exactly. And yeah. The climate there is a bit, uh, it's a bit messy. I mean, well, not, not, not any more messy than here. I mean, or over in the U S especially where, Elections are getting contested and you know, no one's happy at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happiness is a problem everywhere, it seems. But yeah, it's uh yeah, we're gonna have a go through another election cycle soon in 2024. So not looking not looking forward to that. I don't know which way the government goes, what's what's gonna do with the stock market, but we we will see. 
we will we will see indeed okay just to wrap it up then um maybe uh most important or if you could recommend maybe one book or one one source of information to people um most useful that you that you've uh in your opinion. yeah i mean um i think from a from a from i think three books right if you're looking at just like a value stock perspective of their cheap stocks you know the intelligent investor if you don't have a copy yet by benjamin graham that's certainly number one um if you're looking at growth i think peter lynch he has a series of three books that are great uh all three of those books kind of describe growth pretty well mm -hmm. and then from overall perspective of just understanding you know what a quality company is i think all the books joel greenblatt wrote i think those are excellent Great. All right. Well, I'll definitely be be sure to check them out. I do. I do have a copy of the Intelligent Investor somewhere, three hundred page PDF. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dig into that. I, yeah. It's. It's. And I mean, a lot of it boils down to even in the Intelligent Investor is to tell you just to index. I mean, that's there is sections on picking stocks. You know, the 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 gram number and how to do a net net. But yeah, it's mainly says put all your money into an index strategy. And before there was an index fund, it just said buy the Dow, you know, 30 stocks, price weighted. Um, now that it's been revised several times. So it says, you know, buy index funds. Absolutely. I do find myself wondering sometimes, obviously, uh, you know, Buffett and some of these people grew up in a very different time where, you know, obviously you just open the newspaper and go through the financials there. Maybe information was a bit limited. Being a value investor was a lot easier. And, also, perhaps a lot less influence now. A lot of people, you know, talk about the different moves created by options trading. Uh, you know, short sellers, those kind of strange short squeezes. Any any mm -hmm. thoughts on those uh, market dynamics? Yeah, it's amazing. I regret getting out of some of those too. GameStop. I had a lot of GameStop before it squeezed. I really? was following Mike. I was following Michael Burry just on the value premise. You know, I was trading way below book value. I wasn't thinking about it squeezing. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are legitimate, I mean, short-term traders, I would almost be focused a lot on those, uh, those short sellers that are trying to, to put a dead business out of business, which is kind of dumb, you know, once, once, uh, once, a, once a company becomes so small that, you know, some big whales can control the volume. Um, it's, 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 it's been a smart investing strategy. It's been amazing, but not something I, I, I would do, um, but yeah, there's there's huge influence in that in being on Reddit or one of those different forums where people can collaborate and you know get together and make moves on certain stocks, which apparently is not illegal still. Um, it may it may be in the future, uh, but there's validity to all that, and and um, the options market affects a lot of things in the short term. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a thin line. I mean we've we've discussed a few stocks here. I don't I wouldn't say we're we're colluding in any way. Oh no, no, not at all, not at all. But yeah, I mean, another by a few million, and it's a different story, I guess. Yeah, yeah, long call options. Those are always that's another smart value investment way too. I think there was a Greenblatt book that talked about focusing on spinoffs. A lot mm -hmm. of times, spinoffs they get they get beaten down pretty hard after they've been spun off because they 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 turn into a company that's not institutional size from an institutional company. So, the funds that own those they don't want them anymore. They dump them. And you could buy long options against them. And basically, you know, you, you got five times leverage in a long call option. So you can make a lot of money there. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole nother topic. 
but it's uh options and derivatives and stuff there's there's def- definitely niches to pay attention to to where people can make money on it do you ever use options maybe puts or calls maybe just to uh Make I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends to do. I've been, I've been tempted. I've stayed away. I think the, most of the books have, that I've read, have, have, except for maybe that one Joel Greenblatt book I like. You could be a stock market genius. Has said, you know, it's it is wise to do long call options on something you know is obviously a value. Uh, but I, I've personally stayed away. I've just been, um, you know, like to do my calculations of intrinsic value uh, on on certain equities and just be long those as long as possible. Um, unless it goes up irrationally, like Tesla, I wrote the article on, I think it dropped down to hundred. It almost doubled in, in, I don't know, a very short span. I, I couldn't resist. I had to take profit on that. So otherwise I'm holding as long as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brett, thanks a lot for, for talking to me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. I learned a lot. Thanks for coming on and, um, hope to see you soon. Sure. I'll do it again. So uh, thanks, James. And uh, thanks, everyone, for watching as well. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.